Well, uh, good morning again and great to be with you. My name is, is Derek McCollum. I'm the pastor here at Hope. Uh, we are, if you've never been with us, we're, we're a pretty new church. And so if you're new, we're new also. So I hope you feel at home. But if I haven't met you, I would love to. Uh, we are in the middle, not even in the middle of, now we're kind of toward the end of a series that we've been in for the last few weeks called Looking at the Cross. If you look at your bulletin, you can see that on the front of that bulletin, we have these different icons that represent different ways kind of of looking at what Jesus has done. And the goal of all of this is to take some extended time to dwell on what Jesus has done for us on the cross so that we might actually come to love and appreciate that work for us more deeply so that our lives might be driven by it. In fact, there's kind of a, a double meaning to that looking at the cross title. We're going to take different looks at the cross on each of these weeks, but also to reinforce that that is what we are called to do as Christians throughout our life is to look to the cross, to be people whose lives are cross-centered and cross-shaped. So we are now going to look at this idea of judgment, justice, righteousness, justification, all words that the Bible uses to talk about this theme that we're going to talk about today. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to the book of Romans. Romans is in the New Testament. We're going to look at Romans 3, or it is also printed in your bulletin there. I'll read to us now from Romans 3, verse 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, what a uh, what a powerful passage this is. And just how powerful is your word? Living and active, breathing life into us. We ask that you would speak to us through your word this morning. That we might come to know better who we are. That we might come to see the cross of Christ more centrally in our lives. That it would drive us, that it would propel us, that it would fuel us. And that, Lord... In seeing your great love for us, we might come to love you more deeply in return. We do pray all of this in the name of Christ. Amen. I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, the essayist uh, David Brooks. He writes for the New York Times. And he wrote an article a couple of years ago, actually probably last year. Uh, really called, the, the title of the article was Religion May Be in Retreat, But Guilt Seems to Be As Present As Ever. And that's the theme of the article as well. Religion may be in retreat, but guilt seems to be as present as ever. Listen to these words that he writes. He says, technology gives us power, and power entails responsibility, and responsibility leads to guilt. You and I see a picture of a starving child in Sudan, and we know inwardly that we're not doing enough. 
Whatever donation I make to a charitable organization, it can never be as much as I could have given. I can never diminish my, diminish my carbon footprint enough or give to the poor enough. Colonialism, slavery, structural poverty, water pollution, deforestation. There's an endless list of items for which you and I can take the rap. We're still shaped by religious categories and by the need to feel morally justified. And yet we have no clear framework or set of rituals to guide us in our quest for goodness. Worse, people have a sense of guilt and sin, but no longer a sense that they live in a loving universe marked by a divine mercy, grace, and forgiveness. There is sin, but there's no formula for redemption. What Brooks is getting at is this idea that our culture, though we have lost this kind of concept of sin, it's not something we talk about much in our culture anymore. We've lost as a culture this concept of sin, but we're still dealing actually with the ramifications of it. We still deal with all of the trappings of it, even if we've kind of put aside the talk about it. We live in a time that is more anxious than any time probably in history. The poet W.H. Auden has called our time the age of anxiety. We are anxious about our own significance. We're anxious about what's next in life. We're anxious about our identity. We have this kind of just deep-seated understanding that something is just not right about us and it makes us anxious. We also are those who, though we don't like the concept of sin as a culture, we still, we still feel like there needs to be somebody to blame. And we just really like to blame everybody else. It's kind of the unspoken mantra of our society is whenever it's possible, blame somebody else. It's always someone else's fault, right? It's the liberal's fault. It's the conservative's fault. It's the government's fault. It's the church's fault. It's my neighbor's fault. It's my wife's fault. Whatever it is, shift the blame, blame somebody else because it's a lot easier. I mean, let's be honest. It's it's a lot more fun to be the victim than it is to be the perpetrator. Which is why it's also the worst thing in the world that you can be these days is judgmental. Right? Don't tell me what I've done wrong. I'm the victim here. We're going to shift the blame. The other thing I think that our society deals with a lot is this idea of pretending. We're a society of pretense. We put on all kinds of masks and faces and pretensions to the world. And by the way, we've been given our society now the greatest tool for pretending that has ever been created. It's called social media. It allows us to put up whatever face we want on our lives and just pretend to be somebody that we're not. So while we're a society that doesn't like to talk a whole lot about sin or guilt or any of these kind of, quote, religious categories, we're still deeply anxious. We're still those who are pretending all the time and we're shifting blame to everybody because we don't want to be those who are guilty. Well, what Paul says, what the Apostle Paul says here in Romans is good news to our society. Even if we've kind of thrown out some of those categories, it's good news for us. Because what Paul says is that there actually is a judge, there is such thing as guilt, and that judge has ruled in our favor. He has ruled not against us as he should, not against us as we are culpable for, but he's actually ruled in our favor. That God has proclaimed us to be righteous and not guilty. And that proclamation, that ruling of God in our favor, that judgment actually changes how we think about anxiety. And it changes how we think about blame. And it changes how we think about pretense. It should change our lives deeply. The beauty of the gospel is that on the cross of Jesus, 
God has actually proclaimed justice to be done and has ruled in our favor. That's what we're going to look at this morning. And we're going to look at those three concepts, anxiety and, and blame, particularly blame shifting and pretension as the, as, as how we're going to understand the judgment of God given on our behalf instead of against us. So let's look at that first one. The first thing that we realize, I think, in looking at this text is that we can't afford, we can't avoid our deep anxiety. We can't just run away from it or set it aside, but God actually can give us something new. We can't avoid our anxiety, but God can replace it with something new. I want you to picture for just a second um, something that, that may have happened to you. It's happened to me quite a few times. Uh, you're driving down the highway. And I'm in, 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 the, in the word picture here, I'm not going to be driving my car because I don't want to be driving my car. So I'm driving one of y'all's cars, uh, and it's really nice. And, uh, and the AC is kicking at about 72, and the leather seats are nice and comfy, and there's some 90s slow jams playing on the radio. And, uh, you know, just cruising down the highway, and everything is good with the world, and the mind is wandering and lost in the music, and everything is nice, right? And then you look up, just kind of glance in your rearview mirror, and you see behind you the the lights right so no longer is it 72 i mean the sweat starts to beat up on your forehead and your stomach drops and your heart rate skyrockets and you know anxiety level goes from zero to about a thousand doesn't it and you see that cop behind you and so you start to kind of pull over pull over the car and then the cop goes by he's not after you he's after somebody else the greatest feeling in the world, right? Even though you've got your phone in your hand and you were actually reading a website while you were driving and your seatbelt's not buckled, you know, and your registration is overdue, right? But whew, he wasn't pull, he wasn't coming after you. He's going back for somebody else. Really, the first couple of chapters of the book of Romans really deal with that idea. Paul is actually laying out this argument that God has actually come to bring justice to the world. That he's come actually to proclaim who's guilty. And he starts with this really broad kind of category and it's people that look really, really pretty bad. They're like the bad folks. They're doing all the bad things. They're the things that everybody would say, like, man, those guys are the bad people. And, you know, even worse, they know the truth, but they're rejecting it completely. And so, like, you're pulling over like, it's that guy, you know, he's in a red car. You know, it's awful. Go get him, right? It feels good. You feel good as you're starting to read because, like, at least that's not me. But then as you continue to read through Romans 2, 1 and 2, that, that circle starts to get a little tighter and tighter. And he introduces the second concept of people, the second group of people. And those people actually look a little bit better. I mean, they're like, they're nice people. They're not church people, but they're nice people. And like, they look a lot like you. And you, you know, it's kind of like you're driving by and you see the car that the cop pulled over. And you're like, man, that kind of looks like my car. And, and like, that's my neighbor. I actually know that guy. Right? And so you can start to feel a little bit, you know, it's like it feels a little bit closer. Starting to hit a little closer to home. And then Paul comes in really swinging hard with the third category. And it's not just nice people. It's like church people. And they send their kids to Christian schools. And they listen to Christian slow jams. And they do all the right stuff. And they're good folks. And Paul is saying, the wrath of God is actually being revealed on these people too. And you realize there's another set of lights in the rearview mirror. And they're coming for me. And it's that feeling of, I can't outrun that anxious feeling that something is wrong in this world. I want you to open up and look at Romans 3 again. And look at verse 21. 
Paul says this, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And then he says here in verse 22, for there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. What Paul says is that when the judge, God the judge of all, comes, those sirens come running in and he comes to make the judgment on who's guilty, we the ones who should be getting pulled over, we the ones who really are guilty and should be standing in front of the judge and condemned and sentenced to death for all time, he's actually said, no, I'm going to give you my righteousness. I'm actually going to give you something that is not yours. And it's amazing as you read through this. Think about this. Verse 21. Uh, where did I go? Verse 21. For, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God. That phrase is used a few times in these verses. So it's, it's an odd phrase. Righteousness of God. What does it really mean? In English it's pretty vague. Because actually in Greek, the original ri- uh, language it was written in, it's also really vague. It could mean it's God's righteousness. Righteousness of God, meaning it's righteousness that belongs to God. It's God's own righteousness. Or it could also mean it's righteousness coming from God. So which one is it? Well, actually, in this case, it's both. And this is what makes it so amazing. Is it's God's own righteousness that has been given to us. See, as we stand before the judge, it's not just enough that he says everything's okay. We'll kind of wipe away the bad. He actually has to give us something from him. He has to declare us not just not guilty, but also right with him, righteous in the correct relationship with him. And we look to the cross and we see what God has done. That's what he has done. He has declared us to be in right relationship with him. I think Calvin says this really well. And if we could actually, we're going to put it up on the screen here. You thought I was talking about John Calvin, didn't you? Here's Calvin and Hobbes. They're flying through the air on a sled. And Calvin says, I'm getting a little nervous about Christmas. And Hobbes says, uh, are, are you worried you haven't been good? And Calvin says, well, that's really the question, right? It's all relative. I mean, what's Santa's definition, right? How good do you have to be to qualify as good? And the next slide, you know, I haven't killed anybody. See, that's good, right? I haven't committed any felonies. I didn't start any wars. I don't practice cannibalism. Wouldn't you say that's pretty good? Wouldn't you say that I should get lots of presents? And then this is what Hobbes says. But maybe good is more than just the absence of bad. And Calvin says, yeah, that's what worries me. (laughs) He's got, he's on to something there. Maybe good is just more than the absence of bad. Maybe good actually has to be something else. And what the Bible says is that that goodness has to be given to us. That God actually has to give us his righteousness. So when we look to the cross, when we look at what Jesus has done, that's what we get to see. Is that God has actually declared us to be righteous. That the judge, who rightfully should be condemning us, has actually ruled in our favor. And declared us to be righteous. This is so important. Really for all of us. It's so important that we don't get this confused because we get this, we get this equation flip-flopped all the time. See, what Paul says here is it's righteousness that comes from God to us. 
oftentimes what we think is, okay, in order for me to be in right relationship with God, there's got to be a righteousness that comes from me that's given to him that kind of satisfies him. And if I'm good enough, if I do enough, if I'm kind of, you know, a pretty good guy, then, then that's the righteousness that I get to give to God and say, look, here, if this is what I've done, then, then he accepts me. But it's exactly the opposite. Listen, if you are here and and you've never been in church or you don't know what you think about Jesus or you're just exploring Christianity, that is the heart of what Christianity is about. That's what we call the gospel, the good news, is that God has actually given us his own righteousness, is that Jesus on the cross has actually declared us to be righteous, not because of what we do, but actually in spite of it. All we do is receive that gift. We don't earn it. We receive it. But friends, honestly, if you've been a Christian for 50 years, you, you still probably struggle with this because we all do. In fact, these words that Paul wrote were written to a church. They were written to a bunch of Christians in Rome. He writes a whole letter to the, the church in Galatia that has to deal with all of this. With a whole church that thought, you know what, great, we got in through the grace of Christ. That's how we became Christians. But now in order to please God, let's do a lot of really great stuff and he'll like us more. And Paul says, no, that's not it at all. It's God's righteousness given to us, not our righteousness given to him. So I'll just leave you with this. When you look to the cross, when you look at what Jesus has done, see the declaration of righteousness given on your behalf. See the judgment that God has made and declaring you to be right with him. For that erases anxiety. We can actually take our anxieties now to the cross. We can leave them there at the foot of Jesus and we can say, you've actually made me secure. You've done something that I could not do. You've ruled in my favor and I don't have to be deeply anxious anymore. All right, here's the second thing. Second kind of truth that we want to talk about is that we can't blame somebody else. We can't shift the blame away from ourselves, but God actually can take that blame for us. Though we can't shift the blame away, God can actually take it. Joy and I were dating, and it was probably our third date. It was very early on in our relationship. And I had this great idea that we were going to, we were students at at UT at the time, and I had this great idea that we were going to go and sneak into the football stadium and walk around the track, because I just felt like a cool thing to do. We'll go hang out on the football field, we're in the middle of the stadium. But there's these really, really, really tall gates that you have to get over if you're going to sneak into the stadium. And when I was literally straddling one of these 20-foot tall gates, uh, the campus police came up and found us. And they pulled us down, and they gave us this kind of stern talking to, and they were about to let us go, and they said, you know, oh, well, we got to run your license, make sure, you know, everything's fine. And so they ran Joy's license, and to nobody's surprise, everything was squeaky clean. Um, mine, not so much, because actually what came up was that there was a warrant out for my arrest for an unpaid speeding ticket. And so they cuffed me and they put me in a police car and they took me to the jail in downtown Austin. Okay. And they put an orange jumpsuit on me and like little slippers and fingerprinted me and took my picture and they threw me in this big cell with all the other people wearing orange jumpsuits. And I was next to this guy and I guess, you know, I guess as you do, as prisoners do, you know, you got to, you got to talking and, um, you know, and he said, you know, why, what are you in here for? You know, what are you doing? And I said, well, I forgot to pay the speeding ticket and, you know, I was worn out for my arrest, you know, duh. And, uh, you know, then just kind of as a throwaway comment, um, how about you? Why are you here? And he said, oh, um, 
I assaulted a police officer. And it was the third time that I did it. And um, I'm probably going to go to prison now. And I was like, are you kidding me? I'm in here in the same room. I, I didn't pay a speeding ticket. This guy assaulted a police officer. Like, why are we sitting on the same bench together? I was like, can I, can I get a private room or something like that? I was so offended that I was in there with that guy. But you see what I was doing? See the blame shifting going on? The comparison blame shifting? Like, I'm not that bad. Like Calvin, I haven't killed anybody, I haven't started any wars, I don't practice cannibalism, I haven't assaulted a police officer, why am I here? But all that is, is me actually shifting the blame away, because the truth is, I was supposed to be there. I was just as guilty as he was. I was just as guilty as any of those people were. The beauty of the gospel, though, says that though we cannot shift our way out of our blame... Though we cannot compare our way out of our guilt, God actually can do something for us. He actually can take our guilt for us. Look at verse 25 again. Listen to what Paul says. Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And listen to this. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, when you read through Romans and you see the word righteous or just, they're actually the same word in Greek. So all through this, Paul is saying the same word over and over, and he's using it in some interesting ways. You see, what he said is that God had actually passed over former sins. So God, in his mercy, had actually not fully punished the sins of the world up until the point of Jesus. In fact, there had been this long list of sin just developing and a huge weight that's just been building and building and building. And though there was the sacrificial system in the Old Testament that was kind of a stand-in for this and a way for God's people to relate to God, still that couldn't actually satisfy the weight of sin. Think about like an old school kind of scale, right? So here's the weight of the sin of the world here. Well, what the book of Hebrews says is that the blood of bulls and goats just can't, it just, it just doesn't balance. It's not the same. It can't pay for it. There actually has to be a real payment that's going to satisfy that. There has to be actually someone who is judged. There has to be someone who is found guilty and who takes the punishment for it. Now, again, in our culture, this is something that's a little foreign to us because oftentimes we think, man, like, Why can't God just like forgive? Like why can't he just say it's okay and we just wipes it away and forget about it? But honestly, friends, that is not what you want. That is not who you want God to be. Any system of justice that doesn't punish those who have done wrong is not a just system. Right? If you were to just say, well, listen, you know, um, genocide, it's okay. You know, we'll just, we'll just kind of set that aside. We'll turn a blind eye to it. It's going to be all right. Child abuse, you know, eh, it's all right. Not a big deal, right? You know, mass murder. Child walks into a school. Young man walks into a church. Eh, it's not a big deal. Do we want that in a God who says, huh, whatever, evil, not a big deal? Of course not. A God who is not just is not a God who is worth worshiping. If that's what you think about God, really, honestly, you shouldn't be here. That is not a God who is worth your worship. Just go home and worship something else. Because a God who is not just is not worth worshiping. So what God is saying here is that he has to be just. He has to be just. He has to punish sin. He has to be the one who actually balances the scales or else he's not a righteous judge. 
So how is God going to be both just and merciful to us at the same time? Well, the answer is the cross. The answer is that he actually pays the penalty himself. The only one who is perfectly righteous, the only one who is undeserving of punishment, takes upon himself the punishment of the world so that God might be both just and the justifier at the same time. That he might be just and merciful so that we don't have to blame our way out of it, so that we don't have to compare our way out of it. God has done it. He's done it for us. That's what Jesus has done on the cross. So as you look to the cross, the wrong thing to do would be to say, at least I'm not like fill in the blank. The right thing to do as we look to the cross is to say, I'm exactly like fill in the blank. And Jesus has paid that punishment for me. All right, third thing real quick is another thing that's very popular in our culture, and that's pretending. But here's what the gospel says. Is though we cannot make ourselves to be somebody we are not, God actually can. Though we can't just pretend our lives into being somebody we aren't, God actually can make us someone new. Look again back here now at verse 20, uh, 22. Paul says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Paul says that all are guilty, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory, so we all deserve his punishment. But also, all are are able to be redeemed by Christ. All who turn to Jesus in faith are justified freely and given his righteousness. Not just those who look like they have their lives together. Not just those whose lives just kind of seem like they, they, they're on the right track. Not just those who have enough money to pay all the bills and put a little in saving. Not just the people who seem like everything is going just fine. But all. I was talking with Jason Hill uh, the other day, and he, he brought up really this this really wonderful uh, point about uh, about New Braunfels, about our place, and one of the things that really I think defines our particular culture is that we really like to be a people who feel like and are seen to be churchgoers. We live in a churchy place, a place where church kind of plays a big role. And if you ask somebody where do you go to church, nine out of ten people are going to give you an answer. Now, those people may go to church once a month. They may go to church twice a year, but they're still going to say, I go to church. I'm a churchgoer because that's kind of what it means to live in our place and to feel good about yourself. We like to feel like we're churchgoers. We like to feel like we're those who have kind of doing the right thing and we've got that religious box checked. But the Bible says that we don't have to pretend We don't have to pretend to kind of put on this facade of being religious. We don't have to pretend actually to put on this mask, this image of having everything together. My children are perfect. My house is perfect. Everything is clean. Everything is tidy. My life is perfect. Nobody ever gets to get in behind that wall. But that's not what the gospel says. The gospel says that God actually has made us someone new. That he has declared us right before him. That the judge has actually ruled in our favor. And what that does is it erases pretense. It erases the pretending that we so often do. We don't 
we don't go to church because it's something that makes us look nice to others or it makes us look nice to God. We come because he's done something amazing for us and, and we want to come and give our lives to him. And we want to come and hear more and more of that amazing thing that he's done for us. All right, let's put a little application here just real quickly as we close. What do we do with this? If, if God has ruled in our favor, if he has in the cross actually proclaimed justice and judgment, not on us and against us, but actually on our behalf and given us his righteousness, then what does that mean for us and how we live our lives? Well, I think first of all, what do we do with our anxiety? Two things. First, we can actually bring our anxiety to the cross. Is that we can actually come to the foot of the cross and, and lay our anxiety there and say, Jesus, I'm worried about things. I'm worried about what's next in my life. I'm worried about maybe how I'm going to pay my rent next week. I'm worried about if I'm ever going to get married. I'm worried about my job and what's going to happen to it. I'm worried about my health. I'm worried about my relationships. I'm worried. I'm anxious. I'm deeply anxious. But I get to give this to you because you have declared me to be right. And you have said, I will care for you. I will love you. You are my own. So we not only get to do that for ourselves, but here's the neat thing too, is that not only again, is this a vertical truth, but there is a horizontal truth to this too, is that we also get to invite others in to take their anxiety. How oftentimes do you have discussions about someone else's problems or frustrations or anxieties and we so very quickly turn to problem solving mode? At least I do. Probably most of the guys in this room do. Okay, let's see if we can figure that problem out. Let's see if we can kind of, you know, figure out how to get, how to get that thing work. We'll find you a new job. We'll get you cared for. We'll get you a doctor. All of that, right? And how quickly do we skip over the truth of what Jesus has done? God has declared us to be right before him. He has ruled on our behalf. Let's preach that gospel to each other. Let's give that good news to one another. All right, secondly, how about blame shifting? Well, not only are we those who get to now take our blame before the Lord and say, you know, Lord, I can't run away from this. I can't run away from my, from my, my guilt, but you can actually do something about it. You've taken it. So we get to live in that. We get to live at the foot of the cross. That's what it means to have a cross centered life. But also it means that we get to stop comparing ourselves to other people. I mean, I struggle with this all the time, thinking about my friends, my peers, whomever it is, and like, you know, whether they are better at one thing than I am, or whether they are more more spiritual than I am, or whether they are more wealthy than I am, or whether they are more accomplished than I am, or whether they're more fit than I am, whatever. I mean, the list literally could go on and on and on. And I'm so prone to comparing myself, but what God has said is that there's no need to compare I've actually made you right with me. I've made you righteous. I've made you perfect. We don't have to compare. And here's this third one, pretending. Okay, not only do we get to stop pretending before the Lord and kind of like giving him our spiritual resume all the time. It says, see all the stuff I've done? I've been good. Don't you love me? We get to stop doing that, but we also get to invite others in to a life that is transparent. We get to invite others into that life that, that, is, that is not pretense either. Part of that is simply by bringing people into your home when it's not totally clean. Bringing people into your life when it's not totally shaped up. Bringing people into discussions about what's going on with you that includes more than just the word fine. It's bringing people into your life that also calls them into that transparency together.
Friends, the one who has experienced the most anxiety that any human being could ever experience, we read that Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane literally sweat drops of blood. That's some serious anxiety. The one, the one who, who truly could have blamed, who, who really had no blame and no guilt and could have blamed others. Instead, you know what he said? It was, Father, forgive them, for they know what, not what they do. The one who could have pretended, instead actually took on human form, humbled himself, literally stripped himself bare and on the cross, stripped himself naked and hung before us. That's not pretense. That's honesty. That is the one who has come to take our sin, to take the judgment of God upon himself so that that judge might rule on our behalf. When we look at the cross, that's what we see. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this amazing truth that the judge has ruled not against us but for us. That just doesn't even make sense to our minds. It is, it is good news that is, that is too difficult to understand sometimes. So Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to come and soften our hearts that we might get it. And that we might live from it. That our lives might be lives that are lived looking to the cross. Functioning out of that truth that you've given us. We show us what it means to be that kind of people today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.